Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, December 21st, 2018, the first day of a new winter. And this evening we are going to present part 11 of our commentary on the Gospel of John. It is subtitled Bride and Bridegroom. This is the fourth, and for now, the final presentation of our commentary on John chapter 3. In the three previous chapters of this series, or segments of this series of podcasts, we hope to have discussed adequately the conversation between Yahshua Christ and Nicodemus, the faithful but puzzled Pharisee. We also hope to have established the scriptural basis for what is born from above, which is the establishment by Yahweh of the ancient children of Israel into a peculiar and separate people living under his law. We saw that this was stated explicitly in the words of Solomon in Wisdom chapter 19. However, we also hope to have established that In the spiritual sense, the term is applicable to the children of Israel and also to the wider Adamic race by the nature of their original creation. While Solomon used language that invokes the Genesis creation account to describe the establishment of Israel under the law at Sinai as a new aspect of God's creation. So he wrote, as we may translate the Greek, for the whole creation in its proper kind was fashioned again from above, serving the peculiar commandments that were given to them, that thy children might be kept without hurt. Furthermore, we hope to have established that the world which Christ had come to save was that very same thing, the once present and then future world which had been and which still is promised to come of those very same children of Israel. As Solomon had also described in Wisdom chapter 18, the twelve tribes of Israel represented on the breastplate of the high priest are indeed the world of our scriptures. They are they alone are also that which was lost, which Christ had explained that he had come to save at diverse times during his ministry, as it is recorded in the Gospels of both Matthew and Luke. The one statement in John three sixteen and seventeen, John chapter three verses sixteen and seventeen where Christ had said that God so loved the world and that the world through him might be saved cannot be interpreted in the manner which conflicts with the other statement which he made where he said that the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. But any seeming conflict is immediately dissolved Once we take note of Solomon's wisdom, where he attested in chapter 18 that in the long garment was the whole world, 
and in the four rows of the stones was the glory of the fathers graven. Their names were engraved on those stones. The stones represented the twelve tribes of Israel, and they are the whole world of the scriptures. With this understanding, we should revisit John chapter 1 and the declaration of John the Baptist, where he spoke concerning Yahshua Christ and said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. The same Apostle John, in chapter 3 of his first epistle, explained that sin is transgression of the law, where he wrote, the same Apostle as the John who wrote this Gospel, not as John the Baptist, where he wrote that, Whosoever committeth sin transgresses also the law, for sin is transgression of the law. So one must have been given a law in order to commit sin. Or as Paul of Tarsus had written, then sin is not imputed. In Romans chapter 5 where he wrote that, for until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. So if sin is not imputed to anyone who had not been given the law, then there would be no need to take away such sin as it was not imputed. So as Paul had said in Galatians chapter 4, God sent forth his Son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the law. And he came for no other people as he himself had also proclaimed. For instance in Matthew chapter 15 verse 24. And this is evident because, as the scriptures also attest, only the children of Israel were ever given a law. Therefore, only the children of Israel could possibly have been under the penalty of sin and required forgiveness. We read in the 147th Psalm, in the words of David, he showeth his word unto Jacob, his statutes and his judgments unto Israel. He has not dealt so with any nation, and as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise ye Yahweh. David rejoiced that only the children of Israel were ever given a law, and that it was not intended for any other people. Therefore Christ who came to take away the sins of the world, could only have intended to take sin from the children of Israel, as sin could only have been imputed to them. These statements are fully reconciled once we see that only those same children of Israel are the world with which the scriptures are concerned in both Old Covenant and New as we now hope to have fully demonstrated from the wisdom of Solomon and from the prophets of the Old Testament. Bringing these things to light, we had discussed many passages from the prophets, especially from Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, which support our interpretation of these scriptures in reference to the children of Israel. For example, 
in Isaiah chapter 27. The greater purpose of Yahweh is revealed, where it says, He shall cause them that come of Jacob to take root. Israel shall blossom and bud. Israel there is they who come from Jacob, not some future church. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. That this purpose has not changed is evident in Revelation chapters 21 and 22 in the description of the city of God with the names of the tribes of Israel upon each of its twelve gates where we read and he showed me this is John speaking and he showed me a pure river of water of life clear as crystal proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb in the midst of the street of it and on either side of the river there was the tree of life which bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations ostensibly those nations are the nations of Israel since the twelve fruits are the people of Israel prophesied in Isaiah to fill the face of the world with fruit. What Solomon had explained rather explicitly, we can also see revealed in the prophets and in the words of Yahshua Christ in his revelation. But the wisdom of Solomon has become despised and rejected by man and consigned to the status of an apocryphal work. There are many opinions that the book of the wisdom of Solomon is not authentic and that it is a late Alexandrian work and even that it was written by the hands of many authors. These are all based upon conjecture and supposition in spite of the fact that no known Hebrew copy is now extant. We do not wonder that the Jews did not preserve a copy of this book. But it is cited or alluded to dozens of times in the New Testament according to Nestle-Aland and it was considered to be a part of the canon by at least several early and notable Christian writers as early as the second century as well as by Roman church councils up to the middle of the 16th century. It was preserved in the Codices Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, and Alexandrinus, and it appears immediately after the Book of Job in Ralph's edition of the Septuagint. Considering all of the evidence, both external and within the work itself, we see no valid reason to exclude it from our reckoning of the scriptures and no valid reason to even doubt that it was originally a work of Solomon. Now with the words of John the Baptist as they are recorded here in the final portion of this chapter of the Gospel of John the Apostle. We shall see one other aspect of the promises which Yahweh had made to the ancient children of Israel which are fulfilled in Christ and an even greater proof that our interpretation of these things our Christian identity interpretation is wholly correct. So we commence with 
John chapter 3 verse verse 22 after these things after Yahshua's conversation with Nicodemus after these things Yahshua and his students went into the Judean land and he spent time there with them and he immersed or he baptized from the end of John chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 it is certainly apparent that the encounter between Christ and Nicodemus had occurred in Jerusalem so perhaps here John intended to describe for us the departure of Christ from Jerusalem itself into other parts of Judea at the end of this discourse here and the testimony of John the Baptist at the end of this chapter we will see that this certainly did happen in Judea the impression here is that Christ himself was baptizing people however John offers a clarification a few lines later which should also apply here where at the beginning of chapter 4 he made a parenthetical remark and he said even though Yahshua himself has not immersed or baptized but his students the context is not broken merely because of the chapter division so that remark that clarification certainly applies here we should also recall from John chapter 1 that some of the disciples of Christ namely Andrew and John himself the writer of this gospel were initially disciples of John the Baptist and that is how they first encountered Yahshua Christ having approached him shortly after he had been baptized by John it is possible that Simon Peter was also a disciple of John the Baptist since he was close by them at the time although he evidently did not see the baptism of Christ as Andrew and John had witnessed it we could see that from John chapter 1 verses 29 through 43 commencing here with verse 23 in John chapter 3 and Johannes or John was immersing or baptizing in Anon or Ahinon near Salim seeing that many waters were there and they came by and were immersed for not yet and this is another parenthetical remark on the part of John here in verse 24 for not yet was Johannes or John the Baptist cast into the prison this location Anon near to Salem or Salem which is the way that it appears in the King James Version is only mentioned here in the Gospels the word Ahinan or Anon is apparently only a transliteration into Greek of the Hebrew word for a spring or a fountain <coughs> so it may have been only a spring near a place called Salim or it may have been a village which was so labeled because it was noted for such a feature a village built up around a spring Joseph Thayer at the entry for Salim 
and I'm pro pronouncing it Salim instead of Salim or Salim because of the diphthong, the E-I diphthong in the Greek spelling. Joseph Thayer at the entry for Salim in his Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament wrote that according to Eusebius and Jerome, it was eight miles south of Scythopolis. Now, of course, that's in the early 4th and early 5th centuries. Other commentators thought that Salim was the same as Salem and was therefore a reference to Jerusalem after what they esteem to be the ancient ancient name for Jerusalem, which is evident from Genesis chapter 14, verse 18, and from explanations by Flavius Josephus, found in Antiquities books 1 and 7, and also in Wars book 6, where Josephus explains on all three occasions that the Salem of Genesis chapter 14 was the same as Jerusalem. But there is no evidence that John would ever have called Jerusalem after that ancient name. Still other commentators equate this Salim to be the Shalim, S-H-A-L-I-M, of 1 Samuel chapter 9 verse 4 which was apparently in the land of Ephraim, near to that of Benjamin. That may have been within the bounds of Judea as it was in the first century, but we would rather believe that Salim and Ahinan were by the river Jordan, as the text of verse 26 here and the circumstance of there being many waters both seem to suggest. Another proposed location for this place, Ahinan or Anan near Salem, as the King James has it, is found on what is called the Madaba map, a mosaic of the 6th century discovered in an ancient Byzantine church in what is now Madaba in Jordan. There is a, listed a place named Anan, on the east bank of the Jordan opposite Bethabara and close to the Sea of Galilee. However, there may well have been more than one such place called Anon, even though it is believed by some commentators that the description provided by John here, together with a comparison of the Madaba map, supports the reading of Bethabara rather than Bethany for the place where Christ was first baptized as it is described in John chapter 1 verse 28. We mention this alternate reading of Bethabara for Bethany briefly in part 4 of this series which discussed the baptism of Christ and we discussed it at greater length in part 6 where we provided a copy of the map. However, we do not accept that proposition either, and the text here does not at all support it. In John chapter 4, just a few verses below this one, and upon the conclusion of the testimony of John the Baptist, which is recorded here, 
Speaking of Christ, John wrote that he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. The Anon, or Ahinon, which is near Bethabara on the Medaba map, is in Galilee and not in Judea. So Christ could not have been there for the events which are recorded here, and therefore neither could Christ have been baptized there. Agreeing with what is found in Thayer's definition of Salem, there is another modern map which is found in both the 27th and 28th editions of the Nestle Aland Novum Testamentum Grecae, which suggests that Anon and Salim were near Scythopolis. At the time, Scythopolis was neither in Galilee nor in Samaria, and it was far from the Sea of Galilee and the Anon of the Medaba map. In the first century and throughout the period of the Gospel, Scythopolis was in a portion of the Tetrarchy of Trachonitis, which was actually ruled over by Philip, the brother of Herod, Herod Antipas, which lay west of the Jordan and between Galilee and Samaria. Most of Trachonitis was on the east side of the Jordan. A portion of Trachonitis, in which was located Scythopolis, was west of the Jordan, a narrow piece of land between Galilee and Samaria. So we do not accept any of these explanations for this location. First, we believe that John would have named Jerusalem in this context if that were what he had meant to describe, and would certainly have not called it Salem or Salem or Salim. But more importantly, John had already indicated that Christ had departed from Jerusalem, that being the place of his discussion with Nicodemus but also indicated that he had remained in the land of Judea, not going into Trachonitis, Samaria, or Galilee. John would never have confused the regions of Trachonitis, Samaria, or Galilee with Judea. After this event, John explicitly states in chapter 4, as we have discussed, that Yahshua had left Judea and departed for Galilee. As we had proposed, and I understand this is probably a little difficult to follow, I apologize for that, but it's a long explanation that needs to be made. As we had proposed in part six of our commentary on this gospel, that there may well have been other places named Bethania, or Bethany, which only means house of figs, there may also have been other places named Ahinan or Anon, which only means spring. And one of them may have been in Judea and near to the river Jordan. The circumstances of John chapter 10 fully support the assertion that Christ was baptized not far from Jerusalem and across the Jordan from the border of Judea where Christ is embroiled in controversy in Jerusalem and escapes from the Judeans who wanted to kill him prematurely. There we read in verse 39, 
Therefore they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand. And then in verse 40, and went away again beyond Jordan into the place where John at first baptized, and there he abode. Christ went from Jerusalem to the place where John was originally baptizing by crossing the river Jordan, but not by going through Samaria to Trachonitis or to Galilee. So the Bethany where John had baptized was across the Jordan from Judea, and the Ahinan and Salim, where this account is situated, this John chapter 3 account of the testimony of John the Baptist, is situated, is in Judea and near to that place across the river Jordan. We cannot tell, now that we've discussed the geography, we will discuss the chronology, we cannot tell exactly when it was during the ministry of Christ that John the Baptist was imprisoned and then executed. In the sequence of events given in Matthew, in chapter 4, Christ first heard that John was cast into prison. Then there was an exchange between Christ and disciples of John the Baptist recorded in Matthew chapter 9, and in Matthew chapter 11, John is still in prison, where he had sent his disciples to inquire of Christ. Then, in Matthew chapter 14, John had already been executed, and there we have an account of how and why that happened. Mark and Luke each repeat some of these things, but not all of them. However, this account of John testifying of Christ, which is not in the other three Gospels, was certainly even earlier than any of those events recorded in the Synoptic Gospels as John had not yet been imprisoned. But as we had also discussed in part 6 of this series, where we discussed the wedding feast at Cana, it seems that when we compare this Gospel of John to the Synoptic Gospels, the temptation in the desert which John had neglected to record had actually occurred between the wedding feast at Cana, and the time when Christ had departed again for Galilee, which is recorded in John chapter 2, verse 12. The temptation did indeed bring Christ to Jerusalem from Galilee. Of that departure, John said that Christ abode there not many days, and shortly thereafter he was found going to Jerusalem again, this time for the Passover where he overturned the tables of the bankers and later spoke with Nicodemus. So there must have been a much more significant amount of time between Matthew chapter 4 verse 11 and where Christ heard of John's arrest in Matthew chapter 4 verse 12 than the record in Matthew indicates. On the surface, the text here also seems to imply in verse 24 that Christ and his disciples, who were themselves baptizing people, were also baptized by John as they encountered him here. In the King James Version we read, After these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea, and there he tarried with them and baptized. And John was also baptizing in Anon near to Salem, because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized.
they, the pronoun they, may seem to refer to Jesus and his disciples. However, it must instead refer only to people in general, to the people of Judea who were being baptized by John, since in verse 26 John's disciples had to point out to him that Christ and his own disciples were baptizing people nearby, rather than having just been baptized or waiting to be baptized by, by John. So of these people coming to John's baptism, the apostle writes in verse 25 of John chapter 3, then there came a dispute among some of the students of John, or Johannes, with the Judeans concerning purification. The Nestle Aland Novum Testamentum Grece, in both the 27th and 28th editions, and even in the 4th edition, which I think is from like 1921 or something like that, has with a Judean here. There was a dispute among some of the students of John with a Judean, having the word in the singular, and evidently doing that they followed manuscripts which they didn't list. The text follows the third century, the text of the Christogeny New Testament, which has it in the plural, follows the third century papyrus P66 and the fourth century Codex Sinaiticus. The Vulgate and some other early versions, as well as the King James Version, have the word in the plural. I actually checked out George Rickard Berry, and according to him, he has the word in the plural, but in his notes, he admits that most of the editions of the so-called Textus Receptus have it in the singular. Preferring to accept the plural reading, these Judeans are most likely among the subjects of John's statement in the preceding verse where he wrote, and they came by and were immersed. There is no pronoun in the text of that passage, but only a third-person plural verb. In the other Gospels, in both Luke chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 3, we see that certain Pharisees and Sadducees, and even the high priests, had come to John, had earlier come to John, to inquire as to his baptizing. Then where Luke wrote later, in chapter 7 of his gospel, that the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized of him. We learn that they came to inquire of John's authority to baptize, but not to be baptized by him. And it was concerning John's authority to baptize that Christ later questioned his adversaries, which we see in Luke chapter 20. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? And of course they couldn't answer, they were afraid to. While we do not know the details of the dispute which is described here, the baptizing of people is not found in the law, except 
for the ritual washing required for the priests at particular times before the offering of sacrifices, or a washing which may be required in the event that a person is contaminated with something unclean. But as we had discussed where Christ was baptized in part four of this series, the custom was used by the Judeans along with circumcision in their ritual conversions of outsiders to Judaism, which by themselves are a violation of the law. For that reason, the Pharisees and lawyers had questioned the authority of John to baptize. But Christians should understand that John's baptism was indeed in the fulfillment of prophecy. First, his baptism of Christ was a symbolic fulfillment of the law regarding the cleansing of the Passover lamb, described frequently in the book of Exodus. So upon being baptized, John had also declared him to be the Lamb of God. Then John's baptizing of the people fulfilled the prophecy of Malachi concerning the role which John had fulfilled, where it says in Malachi chapter 3, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom ye seek, shall suddenly come to his temple, a reference to Christ, even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith Yahweh of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap, and he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi, and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto Yahweh an offering in righteousness. Christ being that offering. So John's baptism fulfilled both the washing of the lamb and the purifying of the sons of Levi, as the priests were required to wash before the sacrifices. It is immaterial if anyone who is not a Levite was washed, because the prophecy was nevertheless fulfilled in that manner. Ostensibly, while the students of John were arguing with the Judeans, and they came to Johannes and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, for whom you testified, look, he immerses, or baptizes, and they all come to him. And the untranslated appearance of the word rabbi in the Greek of John's Gospel also proves that it was originally written in Greek and not translated from Hebrew. Rabbi simply being a term of respect for a teacher. In John chapter 1, it is evident that both Andrew and John, the writer of this gospel, were at first followers of John the Baptist. Since Peter was also in Judea with them, and they soon introduced him to Christ, he was probably also among the followers of John the Baptist. After John had baptized Christ, and the declaration 
uttered the declaration which he made concerning him. These men decided to break away from John and follow Christ instead. Here, however, we see that other followers of John did not make that same decision, even if they later remembered both John's testimony and the man for whom he had made it. Johannes replied and said, A man is not able to receive anything if it has not been given to him from heaven. The words not and anything are from a Greek term or in some manuscripts a short phrase which means not even one thing. The 6th century Uncial Codex 086 has a man is not able I'm sorry a man is able to receive nothing for himself. Here it seems that John's answer is meant to resolve two different contentions at the same time. The first being the quarrel of the Judeans in reference to baptism and the second being the consternation which his followers had when they saw the baptizing being conducted by the disciples of Christ. When at a later time Christ had challenged the Pharisees concerning the authority of John to baptize, he asked them, as it is recorded in all three synoptic gospels, the baptism of John, whence was it from heaven or of men? So John resolves that here. But now John also makes a greater confession which indicates that his primary subject was the activity of Yahshua and his disciples. You yourselves bear testimony for me that I said that I am not the Christ but that I am being sent before him. Now on a, another technical note. The word emprosten, Strong's number 1715 here, must bear the sense of before, meaning ahead of, or in front of. But where it appears in contrast to another word, protos, in John chapter 1 verse 15 and John chapter 1 verse 30, it must mean preferred over, where protos is before, as we have translated the two words in those passages. Those other passages also indicate that John had believed that Christ was Yahweh incarnate, because John was clearly the older of the two men by order of birth, according to the records of the Gospel in Matthew chapter 2, and John clearly began his ministry at an earlier time. Maybe it's Matthew chapter 1, the account of the, the pregnancy of Elizabeth occurring before that of Mary. The people of Judea were expecting a Messiah at this time, which is at first evident in the account of the visit of the Magi to Bethlehem recorded in Matthew chapter 2, and later in the words of Andrew, Upon his announcement to Simon Peter, as it is recorded in John chapter 1 verse 41, that we have found the Christ, and again in the profession of the Samaritan woman at the well, which is recorded in John chapter 4 verse 25. 
the literature of the Qumran sect found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is also from the first century, and I'm referring mainly to the War Scroll, also indicates the expectation of a Messiah for Israel at that time. So John's denying to be the Christ is not extraordinary, but it was rather in keeping with the expectation of the times. There were other occasions where John had denied being the Christ, as it is recorded in John chapter 1, Matthew chapter 3, Luke chapter 3, but here John professed that he himself was fulfilling the role of the messenger which was prophesied to precede the coming of the Messiah, or Christ, in both Malachi chapter 3 and Hosea, I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 40. Now John makes another statement which asserts that the expected Messiah is indeed present and which once again reveals for us the very purpose of the Christ in direct relation to the ancient children of Israel. He having the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices in joy because of the voice of the bridegroom. Therefore this, my joy, is fulfilled. Here we must ask, why would John even make such a statement in relation to the expected Messiah, or Christ? What has the expected Messiah, or Christ, to do with the role of a bridegroom? How does the image of a bride and bridegroom fit into the prophetic context of an expected Messiah or Savior? Once this question is answered, it should be without doubt that Christ had come only for the descendants of the quote-unquote lost sheep, the sheep which had already been lost, which are the people of the twelve tribes of the ancient children of Israel. Twelve tribes, not twelve church pews. The pattern of events commencing in Exodus chapter 19 with the giving of the law to Israel at Mount Sinai was the same as that of a traditional medieval English wedding ceremony. I'm sure the wedding ceremony was probably patterned after Exodus chapter 19. A man courting a woman makes the prospective wife cognizant of his expectations and the customs of his household and for the vows to love, honor, and obey the husband the wife was promised in exchange to be loved and cared for by the husband. In our modern feminist society the requirement for a wife to obey the husband has actually been written out of popular ceremony transcripts. But for many centuries, it was a firm part of Christian Anglo-Saxon wedding tradition. The marriage relationship of Yahweh to the nation of Israel was depicted in the Song of Solomon, and thinly disguised as a love song between a young Solomon and his own wife, the princess of Egypt. The bride of Yahweh, which are the collective children of Israel, 
were also taken from the Pharaoh of Egypt. And it becomes evident with that that the circumstances of Solomon's life are beyond coincidence. Much later, in Isaiah chapter 54, we see a comparison of the children of the desolate with the children of the married wife, which compares the divorced and deported children of Israel with the remnant remaining in Judah at Jerusalem. When the children of Israel went off into the Assyrian captivity, it was likened to a wife's being put out of the house of her husband in divorce because she refused to be obedient to the laws of the husband. So we see a challenge in Isaiah chapter 50 where the word of Yahweh says, Thus saith Yahweh, Where is the bill of your mother's divorcement, whom I have put away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you have sold yourselves, and for your transgressions is your mother put away. The mother in that passage is the nation, depicted as the mother of the people. In the prophecy of Hosea, Israel and Judah are likewise depicted as two sisters married to the same husband, which is Yahweh. Even later, in Jeremiah chapter 3, we read the testimony of the prophet which says, And Yahweh said unto me, The backsliding Israel has justified herself more than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north where Israel had gone off into captivity. And say, Return, thou backsliding Israel, saith Yahweh. And I will not cause mine anger to fall upon you. For I am merciful, saith Yahweh, and I will not keep anger forever. Only acknowledge thine iniquity, that thou hast transgressed against Yahweh thy God, and hast scattered thy ways to the strangers under every green tree. And ye have not obeyed my voice, saith Yahweh. Turn, O backsliding children, saith Yahweh, for I am married unto you, and I will take you one of a city and two of a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And I will give you pastors according to my heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. Here Yahweh promised the children of Israel that he would not remain angry with them forever, but in spite of his having put them off, would somehow once again be married to them. Later, Judah would also be divorced. This is evident in Ezekiel chapter 23, where the word of Yahweh explains the transgressions of Judah and says, So she discovered her whoredoms and discovered her nakedness. Then my mind was alienated from her, like as my mind was alienated from her sister, just as we see in Hosea, the same analogy. The reference to her sister was an allegorical reference to the kingdom of Israel as opposed to Judah, and Israel was already alienated or divorced. Then further on in that same chapter in Ezekiel, Thou hast walked in the way of thy sister, therefore will I give her cup into thine hand. 
So Ezekiel chapter 23 is a declaration of Yahweh's divorce of Judah. And we see that Judah suffered the same fate as Israel, drinking from the same cup. As Israel was put off in divorce, Judah would also be put off, which happened in the Babylonian captivity. In Jeremiah chapter 31, there is the promise of a new covenant for both the houses of Judah and Israel, and a further promise that Israel would always be a nation, then, or a people, not a church. Then in Jeremiah chapter 33, we read an allegorical question attributed to the enemies of Israel, where it says, Considerest thou not what this people have spoken, saying the two families which Yahweh has chosen, he has even cast them off. Thus they have despised my people, answering that question, Yahweh says, thus they have despised my people, that they should no more be a nation before them. So we see in these passages, in several of the prophets, that Yahweh was alienated from and had cast off both Israel and Judah. So both kingdoms were divorced, having drank from the same cup. The return and preservation of the 70 weeks kingdom in Jerusalem, the kingdom which ultimately became the Roman province of Judea, is a separate matter entirely. By it, what we may interpret as a transcendental prophecy which is found in Second Chronicles chapter 20 is fulfilled, where it says, Ye shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand ye still, and see the salvation of Yahweh with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. O Judah and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem, believe in Yahweh your God, so shall ye be established. Believe his prophets, so shall ye prosper. And of course, as we see the passion of the Christ, the people stood still. They stood by and did nothing. Nothing to stop the treachery of the high priests and those who were with them. Along with the captives and the divorce of both Israel and Judah, there was always a promise of reconciliation and remarriage. Somehow, as we may see in Jeremiah chapter 33, Yahweh would again be married to Israel, as later in the same prophecy he invokes language from the promises of the new covenant made in chapter 31. And he concludes... For I will cause their captivity to return and have mercy on them. This is in spite of the fact that in the law, when a divorced wife had another husband, and as Israel had worshipped many false gods, joined themselves to many false gods, many strangers, it was an abomination for the original husband to take her back. This is found in Deuteronomy chapter 24. When a man has taken a wife and married her, and it comes to pass that she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some uncleanness in her, she's possibly screwing around, then let him write her a bill of divorcement, and give it into her hand, and send her out of his house, precisely what Yahweh did with Israel and Judah, and when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife and they join themselves to many idols, many strangers, 
many false gods, many aliens, and if the later husband hates her and writes her a bill of divorcement and gives it into her hand and sends her out of his house, or, <clears throat> or if the later husband dies, which took her to be his wife, her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. After that, she is defiled, for that is an abomination before Yahweh. And thou shalt not cause the land to sin, which Yahweh thy God gives thee for an inheritance. So the only way by which Yahweh could truly be married once again to the children of Israel was to die himself in order to fulfill the law. Paul of Tarsus described this very thing in Romans chapter 7. Paul wasn't breaking from his discourse on sin and the law in order to talk about marriage. He was talking about the relationship of God to the people who sinned in the law. Paul of Tarsus described this very thing in Romans chapter 7 where he wrote in reference to Christ, Are you ignorant, brethren? I speak to those who know the law that the law lords over the man for as long a time as he should live. For a woman married to a living husband is bound by the law. But if the husband should die, she is discharged from the law of the husband. So then, as the husband is living, she would be labeled an adulteress if she were found with another man. But if the husband should die, she is free from the law. She is not an adulteress being found with another man. And of course the penalty for adultery is death. And the children of Israel having committed such idolatry are technically under the penalty of death under the law. Consequently, my brethren, Paul says in verse 4 of Romans chapter 7, you also are put to death in the law through the body of Christ for you to be found with another who from the dead was raised in order that we should bear fruit for Yahweh. Paul was explaining to a portion of the law sheep, among which were the Romans, the laws governing marriage and divorce in the framework of their relationship to Christ. As the disobedient wife of Yahweh, the children of Israel were worthy of death. But instead, Yahweh chose to die for them releasing them from the penalty of the law in the person of Yahshua Christ. This is how the death of Christ saved Israel. And it applies to nobody else. Thus, he could marry Israel once again, as Paul also asserted, except that by then the children of Israel were long scattered abroad and had become many other nations called by many other names in accordance with many other prophecies. An explicit promise <clears throat> that Yahweh would again marry the children of Israel is found in the prophecy of Hosea. The prophet Hosea was also a prophet of the time of the Assyrian captivities, like his contemporary Isaiah. 
they both lived in prophecy at the same time. Isaiah just had a much longer ministry. The opening chapters of Hosea's prophecy are a poetic description of the divorce by Yahweh of Israel and also of a promised reconciliation. So we see near the beginning of chapter 2, Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, neither am I her husband. Let her therefore put away her whoredoms out of her sight, and her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked, and set her as in the day that she was born, and make her as a wilderness, and set her like a dry land, and slay her with thirst." the authority that an ancient husband had over a woman. Then, after a warning of the wife's impending punishment and some of the things that would happen to her as she was punished, we read of her eventual reconciliation. Because he truly loved her, he had mercy upon her. For I will take away the names of Balaam out of her mouth, and they shall no more be remembered by their name. And in that day will I make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, and with the fowls of heaven, and with the creeping things of the ground. And I will break the bow and the sword and the battle out of the earth, and will make them to lie down safely. And I will betroth thee unto me for ever, Yeah, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness and thou shalt know Yahweh. And it shall come to pass in that day I will hear, saith Yahweh. I will hear the heavens and they shall hear the earth and the earth shall hear the corn and the wine and the oil and they shall hear Jezreel or what God has sown. And I will sow her unto me in the earth. And I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy, Israel, when she was divorced. And I will say to them which were not my people, the people that Yahweh had sent off into captivity and punishment, Thou art my people, and they shall say, Thou art my God. This same prophecy is expressed in different language in the closing chapters of the revelation of Joshua Christ, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and the destruction of all of his enemies, which basically breaks the bow and the sword and the battle out of the earth. We should certainly imagine that John the Baptist understood what he had said when he declared that he himself was not the Christ, but that he having the bride is the bridegroom in reference to the Christ. So if John understood his own declaration, he must have understood it on these very terms which are described in the scriptures of the Old Testament, that Yahweh had promised to preserve, redeem, and remarry the people of the divorced children of Israel. Properly, 
The Christian church is not some institution defined by men and consisting of whosoever. Rather, the Christian church is the people of the children of Israel who have been called to reconciliation with Yahweh their God in Christ, so that he may be married to them once again as it was before he divorced them in their punishment. This message is consistent throughout the prophets, the gospels, and the epistles of the apostles and the revelation. And any contrary message is a false gospel, especially if it is a universalist message. This is why Yahshua Christ was called the bridegroom by John the Baptist. And it is the only reason which may possibly be imagined within the context of John's life. John, a prophet who was born into a family of Levitical priests and who must have known the scriptures, certainly did know that Yahshua Christ was Yahweh himself who was come to reconcile himself to his people Israel in fulfillment of the prophecy of Hosea by betrothing them. In all of the scriptures, there is no other purpose stated for a redeemer who would also be a bridegroom. And Christ also likened himself to a bridegroom throughout his parables and in several explicit statements. One example is found in his answer to the Pharisees recorded in Matthew chapter 9, where we read, And Jesus said unto them, can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then they shall fast. Likewise, we read in Isaiah chapter 62, where Yahweh God is depicted as a bridegroom rejoicing over the people of Israel his wife. For Zion's sake will I not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burns. And the nation shall see thy righteousness and all kings thy glory. And thou shalt be called by a new name which the mouth of Yahweh shall name. A wife is called by the name of her husband. Thou shalt also be a crown of glory in the hand of Yahweh and a royal diadem in the hand of thy God. Thou shalt no more be termed forsaken, neither shall thy land any more be termed desolate, but thou shalt be called Hephzibah, which means my delight is in her, and thy land Beulah, or possessed, or perhaps married. For the Lord, or for Yahweh, delights in thee, the meaning of Hepzibah, and thy land shall be married, the meaning of Beulah. For as a young man marries a virgin, so shall thy sons marry thee, the people will cleave to their own nation. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall thy God, which is Christ, is the bridegroom, rejoice over thee. For the same reason, in Revelation chapter 21, the city of God is described as the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven 
prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and on its gates are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Ostensibly, if you're not of one of those tribes, you're not getting into that city. Ostensibly, the city is an analogy for the people of Israel, who themselves are also born from above, or otherwise they would not be able to enter into that city. They would not be able to enter into the kingdom of heaven. So John, recognizing that he himself was only a messenger to declare the Christ, and that Yahshua was both Christ and bridegroom, expresses the conclusion that it is necessary for him to be augmented and for me to be diminished. The messenger who would announce the coming of Christ is not as great as the Christ himself. So once the Christ is manifest, it is natural that the role of the messenger is diminished. John, being humble, understood that it was time for him to step aside once the Christ became known to the people. So he continues, He coming from above is above all. He being from the earth is of the earth and speaks from of the earth. He coming from heaven is above all. I must apologize for being sloppy in an extemporaneous remark last week in attributing these words to Christ, and I have since adjusted the written commentary. The Papyrus P75 and the Codices Sinaiticus and Beze want that last occurrence of the phrase is above all whereby we would have to render the words he coming from heaven in the way that they open the sentence found in verse 32 which follows so the result would be he coming from above is above all he being from the earth is of the earth and speaks from of the earth he coming from heaven that which he has seen and heard this he attests and no one receives his testimony. The text of the Christiania New Testament follows the papyri P36 and P66 and the codices Alexandrinus, Vaticanus, and O86 and the majority text. Here once again John professes for the Christ to be God himself, as the prophets of the Old Testament had also declared. In this regard, we read in Isaiah chapter 43, I, even I, am Yahweh, and beside me there is no Savior. Then in chapter 44, Thus saith Yahweh the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts. So Yahweh is the King, and his Redeemer is Yahweh himself. I am the first, and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. Then in Isaiah chapter 45, where the reference to the ends of the earth can only be a reference to the children of Israel who were prophesied to be scattered to the ends of the earth as early as Genesis chapter 49. Tell ye, and bring them near. Yeah, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I Yahweh? 
and there is no God else besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. Similar declarations were made in the prophet Hosea, such as in Hosea chapter 13, addressing the sinful and ruined people of Israel. Yet I am Yahweh thy God from the land of Egypt, and thou shalt know no God but me, for there is no Savior besides me. Christ had earlier declared that Nicodemus was born from above, and that if a man is not born from above, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So on the surface, it may seem that these statements are in conflict, but there certainly is no conflict, as all of the children of Adam are born from above by nature of their origin and their spirit. They are nevertheless born on the earth first. Christ himself, being Yahweh God in the flesh, is the only man who actually came down from above having come from heaven. Paul of Tarsus explains this where he uses an analogy of Adam and Christ, whom he calls the last or second Adam, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where he wrote, And just as it is written, the first man Adam, Adam back there in the Garden of Eden, came into a living soul, the last Adam into a life-producing spirit, but the spiritual was not first, rather the natural, then the spiritual. The first man from out of earth, of soil, the second man from out of heaven, as he of soil, such as those also who are of soil, and as he in heaven, such as those also who are in heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of that of soil, we shall also bear the likeness of that of heaven. Paul's analogy of the two Adams, which are Adam and then Christ, is meant to describe the two natures of the Adamic man, the earthly and the heavenly. But as he also said a little earlier in that chapter, speaking of the resurrection of the dead, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in honor. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual, citing the Christogenian New Testament so that I don't have to deal with a few errors in the King James Version in that passage. Even the first man, Adam, was created on earth. But his spiritual nature is a heavenly nature, which is only later revealed, and which is after the image of God. So only God himself in the person of Christ, had actually come down from heaven. John continues to speak in reference to Christ. That which he has seen and heard, this he attests, and no one receives his testimony. He receiving his testimony has assured that Yahweh God is true. This is precisely in somewhat different words, what Christ was telling Nicodemus at the beginning of the chapter, that except a man be 
born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Ostensibly, unless one is of the authentic children of Israel, one cannot possibly understand and accept the word of God. So those who do understand and accept his word prove that God is true by that alone. So we read in the 95th Psalm, which Paul had also cited in his epistle to the Hebrews. For he is our God, and we are the sheep of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart, as in the provocation, and as in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my work. In this same regard, Christ himself had said, in John chapter 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. David said, speaking of Israel, for we are the sheep of his hand. The obedience of the people of Christ is a subject of prophecy in Isaiah chapter 32. The obedience of the people to Christ. Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness, and princes shall rule in judgment. And a man shall be as a, as a hiding place from the wind, and a covert from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. And the eyes of them that see shall not be dim, and the ears of them that hear shall hearken. The heart also of the rash shall understand knowledge, and the tongue of the stammerers shall be ready to speak plainly. It is prophesied again in Isaiah chapter 55, which is addressed to Israel in captivity. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that has no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yeah, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. I'll probably cite this again in the, the, the conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread? And for your labor, and your labor for that which satisfies not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Of course, this is also pertinent to the bread of life discourse in John chapter 6. Incline your ear, and come unto me, hear, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people, a leader and commander to the people. Behold, thou shalt call a nation that thou knowest not, and nations that knew thee not shall run unto thee because of Yahweh thy God, and for the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified thee. Seek ye Yahweh while he, while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return 
speaking of course to the children of Israel because only they can return and let him return unto Yahweh and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon meaning people that were under the law who sinned the nations that thou knowest not are the descendants of Israel in captivity which had forgotten from whence they had come which is how Israel would ultimately be able to return be pardoned and be glorified when he I'm sorry when the intended bride the scattered and lost sheep of the children of Israel turn in obedience to their Lord in the presence of Christ the bridegroom then it proves that God is true because God had prophesied these very things right here in Isaiah and elsewhere so in verse 34 John the Baptist continues for he whom Yahweh has spent speaks has sent speaks the words of Yahweh indeed he does not give the spirit by measure the Codex Vaticanus wants the words the spirit indeed he does not give by measure still speaking of the Christ John informs us that he is not a part-time prophet but that everything which he would say are the words of God himself the father loves the son John chapter 3 verse 35 and has given all things into his hand John the Baptist must have also understood the words of David in the second Psalm that the words of David in the second Psalm were truly uttered as a prophecy for the future Messiah where it says I will declare the decree Yahweh has said unto me thou art my son this day I have begotten thee in verse 7 and then in verse 12 a little later kiss the son lest he be angry and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little blessed are they that are all they that put their trust in him the apostles also cited this passage in reference to Christ in Acts chapter 13 where Paul of Tarsus referred to the testimony of John the Baptist concerning Christ and also cited some of the same passages in relation to John's statements that we have cited here we read that Paul had said and when he had removed him referring to King Saul he raised up to them David to be their king to whom he also gave testimony and said I have found David the son of Jesse a man after mine own heart which shall fulfill all my will of this man's seed has God according to his promise raised unto Israel a savior Jesus when John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel and as John fulfilled his course he said whom think ye that I am I am not he 
But behold, there cometh one after me, whose shoes of his feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. For they that dwell at Jerusalem, and their rulers, because they knew him not, they were Edomites ostensibly, nor yet the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause of death in him, yet they desired that pi- yet, yet desired they, Pilate, that he should be slain. In other words, they begged Pilate to have him slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulchre. But God raised him from the dead, and he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God has fulfilled the same unto us their children, in that he raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption. He said on this wise, or in this manner, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Paul's reference to the sure mercies of David had to have been a citation of Isaiah chapter 55 verse 3, which we have also just cited in relation to John's testimony here. But from Paul's speech recorded in Acts chapter 13, it is also fully evident that Paul understood that the promises in Christ were only for the children of Israel, which he had stated explicitly. So both Paul and John understood the Messiah to be a promised son and a distinguished son of God. John now concludes his testimony. He believing in the Son has eternal life, but he disobeying the Son does not see life. Rather, the wrath of Yahweh waits for him or abides upon him, literally. Here we see that belief is not set in opposition to disbelief, but rather to disobedience. That is because, as we explained in reference to John 3.16, true belief requires obedience and is not merely an empty profession. As Christ had said, as it is recorded in John chapter 14, If you love me, keep my commandments. Then in John chapter 15, If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. However, we have already also explained that today, people disobeying the Son have not necessarily ever heard the Son in order to disobey him. Since 
so many of the modern denominational churches have long departed from the true gospel of Christ to preach a false gospel by which they are deceived. Rejecting the false gospels of the modern denominations cannot be considered a rejection of Christ himself. And it's awfully hard to get people to hear and understand the true gospel. If we were to make chapter divisions for the Gospel of John, if chapter divisions are necessary at all, the following passage would certainly belong to this chapter, yet it was stuck in the beginning of chapter 4. Therefore, as Joshua had become aware that the Pharisees heard that, quote-unquote, Joshua makes and immerses, or baptizes, more students than Johannes, or John the Baptist, and then John makes a parenthetical remark, even though Joshua himself has not immersed, but his students. And then in verse 3, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So we see that these things happened in Judea. And the place where Christ was originally baptized by John must have been across the Jordan from Judea, noting the statements in John chapter 3 verse 26 and John chapter 10 verse 40, which we have already cited. And he was not baptized in Scythopolis, in Trachonitis, or near to Samaria, or Galilee, as so many other commentators frequently assert. This concludes our commentary on the Gospel of John, chapter 3. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and not ever the God of a Jew, or a Negro, or a squat monster. Thank you for listening. And good night.